Well, good morning, church. Good morning. Oh, I like that. Somewhere down here, somebody gave me a really good good morning. I like that. Um, thanks, Nate. That was very sweet of him to say. Um, I am a follower of Jesus. I am a disciple. You are also a disciple. Um, and I've had a great time working with the staff. Um, since February is when I first joined in this crew and got to know um, a bunch of the, the staff in the church. I've spent time with Mike and with Kim and with Nate and with Trevor. And I've spent time at um, the local church as well. I preached there in Grand Rapids. And the deeper I get into this community, the more I just love it. This is a special, special body of Christ. One of the things I really love is your ability to go deep. Um, this is the relationships I've made, the friendships I've made, and the, the walks with God that I've seen. They're not surfacy. They're, they're deep. Uh, they're real-life stuff, and I've really appreciated that. That's really blessed me. So we're going to go deep this morning uh, into our psalm this morning, Psalm 137. Uh, before I do that, let me tell you a little bit about me. So you're like, who in the world is this woman? Why is she here? Um, so my name's Erin. Uh, I live in Washington, D.C., I'm an Anglican priest by, uh, by background. I was ordained actually in the Church of England in London where I lived for seven years uh, and had an amazing time living there. I actually started life living overseas. I was born in Texas, but I grew up in East Africa. So we lived in Somalia and Zambia for about five years. Um, so Africa is a big place in my heart. I've been back lots of times as, as an adult, um, largely to Kenya and Uganda and Tanzania. And I'm currently doing research right now in Kenya in Nairobi with some of the church churches there. Um, so my heart is for the world, is for the poor. I work for Fuller Theological Seminary, which is based in California, but I live in D.C. Um, and I, before that, I was working for International Justice Mission, which some of you may know is an organization that works to protect the poor from violence. Um, so this is kind of, that's kind of my story. That's who I am. I'm a lover of Jesus. I'm a lover of his word. I've been passionate about his word since I was very little, and I got my first Bible, my first, it was actually a Precious Moments Bible. <laughs> Have you ever seen one of those? It was blue, pastel blue, and it had little drawings, you know, Precious Moments drawings in it to tell, kind of help you on your way. It was also King James, which is a funny combination if you think about it. It's children's Bible and it's King James. But anyway, so sometimes I find when I'm quoting scripture that I end up quoting like the, the King James version is the first one that comes to my mind. So forgive me if that happens this morning. Um, I've actually been to, uh, to Holland before, before I started working with Central. I, uh, my, one of my best friends from growing up, she came to Hope for college, and she uh, played soccer at Hope. So I remember coming up and visiting her uh, during college. And so I've been to Holland before, but I'd never been here in tulip time until May. So I was super excited uh, to actually come, and I had that reverse experience that we have in D.C. of like, you know, we live in a tourist city as well, and so we have that experience when the city gets flooded with tourists, and you're, ah, press a tourist, you know, uh, or traffic, rah, 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 you know, um, even though you really love it because you also kind of are cheesy about your own touristy things as well. So I got to be the other side of that and be the annoying tourist going, tulips, ah! Um, so... It's good to be back. It's a beautiful time to be in Michigan. Um, so we're looking at Psalm 137 this morning. So let's dive right into that. Psalm 137. By the rivers of Babylon we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. There on the poplars we hung our harps. For there our captors asked us for songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, sing us one of those songs of Zion. How can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? 
If I forget you, Jerusalem, may my right hand forget its skill. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you. If I do not consider Jerusalem my highest joy. Remember, Lord, what the Edomites did on the day Jerusalem fell. Tear it down, they cried. Tear it down to its foundations. Daughter Babylon, doomed to destruction. Happy is the one who repays you according to what you have done to us. Happy is the one who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks. Dun, 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 right? This is not an easy psalm, right? Uh, this was the psalm I was given to preach on. You know, put, get the guest speaker right in there. Give her the easy stuff, you know. This is going to go great. Um, yeah, so I was given 137, and I was actually grateful because I've, I haven't ever preached on this psalm before. In fact, you may have never read this psalm. It's one of the ones that's often skipped over. And that, again, is a testament to this community and to your leadership that they said, we're not going to skip over a hard psalm. We're actually going to look at this. We're going to take a Sunday and make this a part of our series. Um, so I'm grateful for the chance to dive into it um, with you this morning. So lots of psalms have peaceful, calming images, right? The Lord is our shepherd, Psalm 23. He leads me beside quiet waters. But the images here in this psalm, they're not so peaceful. They're actually images of anger. They're images of pain. Something horrible has happened. Well, what was it? What is the psalmist talking about? The context of this psalm is one particular event in history. It's the destruction of Jerusalem by the Babylonians in 586 B.C. So the psalmist is likely someone who actually witnessed that destruction saw the destruction of the city, of the temple, and then was taken away like the rest of the people of God into Babylon to be in exile. It's is one of those psalms that's actually quite hard to date, so they're not sure, but most scholars think that the writer of the psalm is writing this after they've returned to Jerusalem. Much like returning to a place that's been destroyed, that you had to evacuate from. I don't know how many of you had friends in Houston. I had some good friends in Houston, one that I work with, um, who lost almost their entire house in the floods. And I know people who've said that when they had to evacuate during a storm or flooding or something like that, there's that painful process. But then to come back is like a re-trauma almost, to see it all again, to think through what that was like, to see what's been destroyed. And so for him, this is like returning to the scene of the crime. They've come back to Jerusalem, they're going to rebuild, there is hope coming, but he can't forget what he's been through and what had been done to him and to his people. And that's what he's remembering. There are all kinds of psalms. You've already done a bunch of the different varieties. There's psalms that are hymns. You've done some of those. There's psalms that are wisdom psalms, and you've done some of those. This is one of the smaller uh, groups of psalms. This is actually called an imprecatory psalm. Hmm, imprecatory. You can just Work that into your conversation at lunch. Imprecatory psalm. It basically means a psalm about uh, praying against enemies, praying against evil, a cursing psalm, in other words. And so that's why when we read it, we're like, whoa, this guy's getting kind of heavy. We're not sure about this. This doesn't sound very Christian to actually say or speak. But that's what we're going to get into a little bit. It's a prayer against evil. Love for God's kingdom necessitates hatred for the works of the evil one. And that's what the psalmist is talking about. The psalmist is angry, right? How do you deal with anger? When you see an injustice in the world, maybe when someone does something to you, how do you react? Do you stuff it? 
Do we take it out on other people? Do we let it out in our words or maybe in our actions? Different people deal with anger in different ways. Often it's from the way we grew up, right? If our family didn't really talk much about or show angry emotions, sometimes it's hard for us to learn how to do that in a healthy way. And if we did come from a family that was actually quite loud and violent with their emotions, sometimes with anger, sometimes it's hard for us to learn how to rein that in as well. I'd like to suggest one, one way of working through those kinds of emotions, that injustice, and when we see things in the world that have gone wrong and even that have happened to us that we feel like are wrong or cruel. And that way is prayers of lament. Lament is a part of the Psalms. In fact, a third of all the Psalms are lament Psalms. Laments are prayers. They're prayers to God in a time of trouble, calling out from a place of discouragement, of pain, and saying, God, help me. This psalm, as I said, is an imprecatory psalm. It's not a classic lament psalm. But the ways that the psalmist deals with his emotions is exactly the way that leads him to lament. Laments are all through the psalms, as I said. They're often talking about situations of isolation, of shame, of danger, of accusation, of loss and death. Laments are ways that we intentionally bring the hurts of our lives to God, knowing that he can handle it. We see laments in the book of Job. We see them in Jeremiah. We see them in Habakkuk. And of course, we see them in the book that's called Lamentations, right? <laughs> heard some of you. Sunday school, two points. I heard some of you. Uh, Lamentations, exactly. And Lamentations is actually the book about this situation. It's the people of God crying out from Babylon because of the destruction of Jerusalem, because they were taken into exile. We see laments in the New Testament. Blind Bartimaeus calling out to Jesus. Jesus, son of David, have pity on me. Jesus himself laments to the Father in the Garden of Gethsemane, right? Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup from me. Jesus, even on the cross, quotes one of the most famous laments of all the Psalms, the classic one that scholars refer to, which is Psalm 22. And on the cross, Jesus quotes it in his own cry of prayerful lament, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But for us, and I think particularly in the Western culture, I don't know that this is true all around the world, but particularly for us in the West, Sometimes we're not encouraged to face these kinds of feelings, right? To feel the pain of our circumstances. In fact, as humans, just in general, we want to walk away from pain. We want to cover it up. We want to be distracted. We want to run away. We want to think of something else. Or maybe we've grown up in a, in a house that said, pull up your bootstraps. Put on a good face. I know for me, I'm naturally a joyful person. There are a lot of the fruits of the Spirit that you know, are growing slower than others in my life. Um, definitely self-control, one of them, confession. Um, but joy is a natural one. So for me, when we look at lament, that has been a hard practice for me to learn. And like I always say to our spiritual formation group, uh, these are called spiritual practices because they take practice. You're not going to be great at them at first. Learning to pray 
the lament style. Learning to pray as a psalmist do takes practice. And for some, it's going to feel like a bigger shift than others. For some, it'll feel like moving the Queen Mary. For others, it'll feel like, oh yeah, I get suffering. I'm in suffering all the time. And this is a helpful way to work some of that stuff out in prayer. The problem is, if we miss out on these emotions, if we miss out in bringing the stuff in prayer to God, we actually miss out on a huge piece of who our Father is. Compassionate, loving. The Holy Spirit's the great comforter, right? The great counselor for us to bring our questions and our doubts to. So, as we approach lament, how do we do it? Well, the first step is we define reality, as I like to call it. We keep it 100, as the young people are saying today. Uh, we keep it 100, which means we, we are authentic about who we are and about the pain that we're in. Again, for some, this is going to be the harder step than any of the others that I'm going to talk about. That first step. When we hurt physically, we cry out in pain. When we hurt spiritually, we cry out in lament. Lament can be described as a loud, faith-filled, ouch, God. Ouch. So here the psalmist is, likely back in Jerusalem, having thinking about what happened to the people, how they were in exile. And notice that the psalmist actually uses the, the terms, the pronouns they, we. It's a corporate lament. Some laments are individual, like David praying in the, praying in the Psalms, I am suffering, Lord, help me, rescue me from this pit. Here the psalmist is actually doing this on behalf of others. You can picture others praying this prayer with him, both of their pain of exile and also of their anger at their enemies. There are, are individual and corporate laments. We can lament for things going on in the wider world. It doesn't have to just be something that's happened to you. We can lament injustices that we see happening in our country, in other countries, in the church, in our community. So here's a psalmist, and he remembers it was like it was yesterday. I'm sure you've had that experience of pain. It may have been a decade ago, and someone asked you to tell them the story, and you tell them the story again, and it, you feel it again like it was yesterday. That's what's happening with the psalmist. The psalmist remembers how they were sitting there as captives, and the Babylonians said to them, huh, you Jews, you're supposed to be really good at music. Will you play some of your worship songs for us? You can see them mocking them. And the psalmist is saying, no, how can we play these songs to the Lord in a foreign land? It says, you know, this beautiful image, they sat by the rivers of Babylon and they wept. And this image of a harp, which was their worship instrument, their instrument of joy, is hanging silently in the willow tree next to the river. Can you sense his, that pain, that sense of loss and desperation, which I'm sure many of us have felt before? He remembers it like it was yesterday. He's acknowledging that pain. Defining reality is what some writers have said is the first step of any good leader. You've got to define reality. What is true about where you are and where you want to go? So how skilled are you at acknowledging your own anger when you're disappointed, when you're incensed at injustice going on in the world? As I said, I don't think we're always great at this as Christians. I think sometimes we hear phrases like, in your anger, do not sin. And we, we actually hear in our heads, to be angry is to sin. <laughs> but that's not what it says, right? Anger is a normal emotion. It's actually one of the healthy emotions in the grief process. It's one of the stages you go through when you're grieving. 
in your anger do not sin. It's not being angry that's sinful. It's what we do with it afterwards. Do we take it to God or do we take it out on other people? Another phrase I think we often misunderstand is do not let the sun go down on your anger. We use this phrase a lot to encourage people in marriages or friendships, right, to make sure before they go to bed that they have received forgiveness or asked forgiveness from someone that they may have hurt. And that certainly is a great thing to do in any relationship, to keep short accounts, right? As 1 Corinthians 13 says, love keeps no records of wrongs, to wipe those slates clean. Someone once said that marriage is a union of two forgivers. I think that's a great definition of marriage. I think that's a good definition for the body of Christ, <laughs> that the church is a union of a bunch of forgivers because we've all been forgiven. But I actually think there's something deeper that Paul is saying here when he says, do not let the sun go down on your anger. I think he's actually saying, don't hide it. Don't take your anger and step into the dark. Step into the light with your anger. Step into the light with those emotions that might feel uncomfortable or even unspiritual to you at the moment. Take them to the light of life. Don't bury them. Don't deny them. Hebrews 12 gives us some advice about this. It talks about the root of bitterness that can grow when we do that. It says, don't let the grace of God be held back from anybody. Otherwise, a root of bitterness might grow up causing trouble. It's when we say, I'm not angry, and we refuse to admit it, that we get ourselves into trouble. There's lots of good reasons why that's uncomfortable for us sometimes. It's just a negative emotion. It doesn't feel great. Maybe it's not so spiritual. Maybe it's not polite. Maybe we've been told that it's not an emotion we should have. Or maybe we know that by acknowledging some of that deeper pain, we're going to have to go there, as they say. We're going to have to think about it and work through it, and that might be painful. But here the psalmist is courageous, and he shows us another way. He's open with where he's been and what he's feeling. He says, that was wrong. That was evil. The gloating, the cruelty while we were in captivity, the pain, the suffering of God's people, it was wrong. And it's right to be angry at evil. In fact, if you see injustice in the world and something doesn't rise up in you that wants to fight against that, then we need to think about how connected we are to the God of justice, the God who cares for all of his people, especially the least of these. Divine reality. I'm doing some research, as I said, in Kenya right now with churches that are in Nairobi. They're in a particular area of Nairobi, which used to be called a, a slum of Nairobi. It's thousands and thousands of people living in a small geographic area. No electricity, no running water, no toilets, sewage, etc. Living on about 50 cents a day. So I'm going around to these different churches. They're all different denominations, all shapes and sizes, all ages. And I've been going around asking questions of suffering, asking about their theology of suffering. In a lot of the scholarly world, when we hear about the why questions, why does suffering happen, where does it come from, why do good things happen to bad people, those are all the classic questions of suffering. We often hear them from voices in the West. And so I thought, what, what does someone who is living in a difficult way, living in a physically suffering uh, on a daily basis, how do they answer the questions of suffering? How do they keep going with their walk with God when they face that every day? 
So it's been a privilege to interview these people and to study some of that theology. But one of the things I noticed as I interviewed them, different ages, different life stories, is that I didn't have to ask them about their, their story of suffering. In the first 10 minutes, they told me an intense story of suffering. And they would say, this is my story. This is the suffering story of my life. I think in many ways we have, if you're, at, if you're at any particular age higher up in the age scale, you know what that story of suffering is for you. You continue to carry that often in life as a mark of who you are. It's made you who you are. Their story of suffering came out quickly. I lost my husband. I lost my job, which meant I couldn't feed my family. I had a terminal illness, whatever it may be. I lost my parents. My husband left. But what I also noticed was quickly on the back of sharing their story of suffering, they would say, but it's not from God. The suffering hasn't come from God. It's, it's evil. It's the evil one. But God's used it for my good. By his grace, he's taken it and changed it and brought even good out of the worst of the suffering. Acknowledging their pain, acknowledging what they've been through, didn't diminish the reality of who God was in their lives. They didn't see those as antithetical that God would be mad at them for complaining about something going on in their lives. In fact, it strengthened their walk with God. And then I asked them, I said, where was Jesus in that story for you? Where was Jesus in that time? Did you feel him? It's okay if you didn't. And they say, oh no, God was there. God was there. In fact, only one out of all my interviews said she didn't know where God was. The rest said, God was there. They said, sometimes it was hard for me to feel him personally, but God was in my community. Oh, in your community. Tell me more about that. They said, yeah, Jesus was there. Jesus was in the people who came and took care of my kids when I couldn't work. Jesus was in the people who came and picked me up out of bed for the years, the two years after I watched my spouse die in front of me. Jesus was in my community. I think sometimes in the West, where it's easy for us when we suffer to pull into ourselves. We get more individual often. We go the opposite side of community. We actually pull into ourselves, either out of embarrassment or pain or depression or anxiety. But when we do that, we miss out on one of the roles of the body of Christ, which is to be Jesus to us in our suffering. That's what the body of Christ is called to. Love one another as I have loved you. Lament and making space for lament allows us to be the body of Christ to one another to meet each other in some of the most painful places. We can lament things that are going on in the wider world. If I were to write a lament today, and really for the last year, the lament on my heart, the lament prayer for me has been about racial inequality in America. My heart grieves over where we've been as a country and where we're not yet at. And it can feel like an overwhelming problem. How am I going to affect change? What can I do? And so I've written quite a few laments for myself to work that out with the Lord, to cry out to the Lord. The importance of lament is to acknowledge, to define reality. Because we know even as a nation, if we forget where we've been, we're not going more into the light. We're going more into the darkness. So we acknowledge what we've been, where we've been, where we are, and we try and move more into the light. So defining reality, the first step of lament. The second step is we go tell dad. Or in this case, in the story I'm about to tell you, go tell mom. 
so my, I was eight years old, and we were living in East Africa. As I said, we were living in Zambia. And my mom has a great closet full of amazing clothes and scarves and all these things. And as like any young girl, my sister and I used to love to dress up in her clothes. So I was eight years old, and my sister was nine. And I noticed that my sister got really mad at my mom. And she ran to my mom's room. She opened up her closet. She pulled the clothes out and threw them onto the bed and onto the floor and opened the drawers of scarves and threw them all over the room and causing chaos in general. And I was, you know, dutifully standing by the bedroom door going, ooh, she's going to be in trouble, you know, watching the whole thing going down. And then my sister proceeds to go to her room and to pack a bag. And she closes the bag and she turns to me and she says, I'm running away. And she storms out of the house, out of the front door. Well... With any dutiful younger sibling, I told mom. So I go to mom, and I was like, mom, mom, mom. And she said I was jumping up and down like Rumpelstiltskin next to her. You know, mom, 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 Jordan is so mad at you. She's so mad. And she's thrown all your clothes all over the bed and all of your scarves, and she's going to be in a lot of trouble, isn't she? You know. And I said, and she's run away. And at that, my mom stopped what she was doing, and her eyes got huge, and she said, she's run away. And we had a gate, and we had a guard, and it was likely that the guard would have stopped her, you know, if he wasn't napping at the time, you know, as a nine-year-old walked out the front gate onto the road, you know. Um, but she still was like, oh, my goodness, you know, where did she go? And she grabbed the keys, and you know, so we said, we got to get in the car, we got to go find her. And she was like, okay, Erin, now, where did you see her go? And I go, she went to the treehouse. <laughs> she was just in our yard in the treehouse. She'd run away to the treehouse. This is her dramatic, dramatic exit. Um, go tell mom. Go tell dad. This is what we do when things are troubling in our lives, when we see something happen that we want them to know about. Well, this is what lament is at its heart. We're going to tell our Father. We're going to tell our loving Father who wants to hear about it. 1 John 3, 1 says, Behold, what manner of love is this, that we should be called children of God, for that is what we are. And when he says, What manner of love is this, in the Greek, he's actually saying, What country does this come from? I've never seen this kind of love before. This is otherworldly. What manner of love is this that we should be called children of God? Exclamation point. For that is what we are. Exclamation point. We are children of God. When we've been doing this lament uh, thing in our spiritual formation group, some of my friends here have said, now, Aaron, lament is hard for us Michiganders. <laughs> and I said, okay, teach me. Tell me about it. Tell me about your struggle. And they said, well, lament is hard because a lot of us are taught growing up, don't complain. Don't complain. Don't complain to your parents, let alone complain to God. That's a terrible idea, you know. So I said, I, I, I feel that. I get that at a root level. I really do. I understand that, which is why it's called a practice. But if it's good enough for the third of the psalmists, I think it's good enough for us. If it's good enough for Jesus on the cross and in the garden, I think it's good enough for us. And I think what helps us go to God in this way is to remember that he's our loving father. He's not our boss. He's not going to fire us for complaining. He doesn't think that our complaint means that we're not happy with our work hours and, you know, we're going to have to negotiate something in a contract. He's our father. Imagine if your children didn't tell you about their hurts because they said, oh, I'm not supposed to complain to my parents. Imagine if they didn't tell you about the bully at school that they wanted to to break in and help the little kid who was being bullied, this moment of injustice they saw? Or what if they never came to you with their questions and their things that just seemed bigger and more mysterious than they knew what to do? That's what prayers of lament are. And we can bring those to God. In fact, he welcomes them. 
And we find that when we bring them to him, that he's actually with us in our pain. That a key part of a relationship with God, of discipleship, is inviting God into those areas. And to be honest, he's already there, right? We talked about, Nate talked about anxiety and some of that, uh, the painful parts of that, and, and feeling like people today might be getting freed from that. Um, hallelujah, by the name of Jesus. And I've seen that happen before myself. Someone once said that the difference between anxiety and prayer is just the audience. That when we're anxious, when we're worried, and it's all going on in our own heads, we're just our only audience. It's an audience of one. That tape is playing over and over again, that internal criticism or whatever it is, that fear is rising up. But it's easy to turn anxiety to prayer. We just add in Jesus. When we add in Jesus to the conversation, all of a sudden all of those same tapes and thoughts, they go to the Heavenly Father. And that's where it says, right, that the peace that surpasses understanding will guard your hearts and minds in the knowledge of Christ Jesus. And when it says guard your hearts and minds, that word in the Greek is a garrison. It's a word for a fort. That the peace of God can become a fort around our hearts and minds if we take it to him. Go tell dad. Our laments naturally start with going to the Father, crying out to God. So there are two things that this psalmist remembers, right? The first is the Edomites. The Edomites were like the cousins to the Israelites. They were the descendants of Esau. And when Jerusalem was falling, the Edomites weren't participating, but they were standing by going, <laughs> good job, Babylon. Keep it going. You need some water, lemonade? Keep it going. They were cheering them on. The psalmist remembers that in his gut. It broke his heart. Then he remembers the Babylonians and how they took Jerusalem by violence, which is where that terrible, those terrible verses at the end come from about picking up children and dashing them against a stone. He's saying, may it be done to you as you did to us. That's what Babylon had done to them. And what is his prayer? The central part of his prayer is verse 7. Remember, O Lord. Remember, O Lord, what the Edomites did. Remember what the Babylonian soldiers did. When the Old Testament uses remember, it's not in the way we use it, like recollect. Like, ah, I remember where I put my keys this morning. I remember. No, remember means to act upon, to follow up the promises of God. So, for instance, when God says, I remembered my promises to Abraham, he wasn't saying, oh, yeah, I forgot about that Abraham guy. He's cool. He's key. We should probably pay attention to him. I remember him now. No, he's saying, I'm going to act upon my promises. I remember. So the psalmist isn't saying, God, give me strength to go out and, and to injure my, all of my enemies tenfold. No, he's saying, you remember, God. You act. You're the God of justice. And that's where step three comes. Choosing dis doubt over despair. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Even as I read that, every Good Friday in our, uh, our Anglican Good Friday services, it strikes me again, gosh, I'm often so afraid to say that to God. I'm so afraid to ask God my questions sometimes, because I feel like maybe my faith is cracking apart if I do. And that's why I've entitled this one, Choose Doubt Over Despair. Because normally you'd say, well, Aaron, you're a pastor. We're supposed to choose faith over despair. But doubt is a normal part of our walk with God. Questions are a normal part of our walk with God. If you're a new Christian here today, this may be one of the things that kept you from the church for years, was the thought that you had to have it all figured out. 
before you can come to God. Anyone with gray hair in here this morning will tell you, you never figure it out. <laughs> you never figure it out. There's always more questions because we are not God. Our faith is not about fully understanding everything, not about some sort of logical ascension to complete understanding. It's about faith. It's about continuing to walk forward in the mystery of God and to bring those things to the God who is all-powerful. Laments are prayers of faith. They're acts of faith. Lord, I'm coming to you with this thing. I don't know what to do with it. I can't solve it. But I know that you're close enough. You're always within shouting distance. Even if you feel distant right now, I know you're there. And my faith is still alive. The psalmist seems to be saying, God, I'm very angry at this cruelty and injustice. But you remember, Lord, you're the judge. You execute justice. I'm leaving it in your hands. God says, do not fear, because I'm going to tell you all the secrets. No. He says, do not fear, because I'm with you, because I go before you. Miroslav Volf says about Psalm 137 that by placing our anger before God, it also reminds us that we too could be just as easily the perpetrators of injustice. Laments are also as much about our own sin as they are about the sin of someone else. Remembering that we too could be the cause of someone else's lament. Lament psalms have a particular structure. And I actually want to encourage you to do this if you've never done it before, to write your own lament about whatever is on your heart, whatever is weighing on you from the wider world or your own life. And this is our, the simple structure. The first is an opening address. And we're taking this from Psalm 22, which, as I said, is the classic, the most perfect lament psalm, they say, that's, in, that's there. So you say, my God, my God, or my Lord, or whatever, however, Heavenly Father, however you want to address God. The next is you bring your complaint. Why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me from the words of my groaning? And then they always have a declaration of trust, almost a, a but yet. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our ancestors trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. And then the actual question of help. Do not be far from me, for trouble is near, and there is no one to help. And lastly, a vow of praise. From the horns of the wild oxen you have rescued me. I will tell of your name to my brothers and sisters. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. All of these are on the question sheet, which we made for the sermon. So if you haven't found them, they're all online. Don't worry. But notice how it ends with a vow of praise, which I always think is a funny way to end a lament. Ending praising God. You may have noticed that before when you've read other psalms of lament. That they end with, well, praise you, Lord. We praise you among the nations. Many scholars have various explanations for this. But I think from the viewpoint of prayer, the meaning is clear. It's only after we lament, after we express our pain, after we face the negativity and get it all out, that healing actually begins. And in more theological terms, we need to go through death to get to life. There is resurrection after that walk through the wilderness. That God will show up, as we sang this morning, in life to renew us, 
to heal us. There is hope beyond this valley of the shadow of death. That's my prayer for you this morning. If you are in a lament season, whatever that may be, that you could remember, too, that as you lament, you're bringing it to a God of faithfulness. As the psalmist prayed more than 50 different psalms of lament, they knew they were bringing it to a God who loved them, who they could trust. Isaiah 40, that classic passage, you might have it needle-pointed on a pillow or on your computer screen or on a wall in a room, that classic passage of hope is actually about this situation. It's about the people in exile in Babylon. And the people are crying out saying, why have you not remembered our plans? Why did you forget us, God? Have you ever prayed that? I've prayed that. God's answer to them is this. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Though young men stumble and fall, though youths grow tired and weary, those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. When I was growing up and I used to hear God called everlasting God, I didn't totally understand what it meant. I thought it was like he had no expiration date. You know, he's everlasting, like a can of peas or honey or something. He doesn't rot or something. He's everlasting. What does it mean? Well, I looked it up in the Hebrew. Everlasting means the God of the long view. The God of the long view. He can see beyond the situation we're in. He sees the bigger picture. As we bring our prayers of lament to God, we bring them to the God of the long view. And we can trust the God of the long view. Amen? Let's stand. Let's stand. If you're able, we're going to, uh, I'm going to pray for us as we go back into worship. We're going to remember again in worship the God who can move mountains. The God who is a God of miracles. That even as we bring our doubts and our questions to God, we're coming to a God who is bigger than those doubts and those questions. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for even the tough parts of scripture. Lord, we want to be a people that are faithful to your word, that read it, that take it into our hearts, that are changed by it. So Father, we bring you Psalm 137 with all of its pain and the cries of its people. We may never experience that level of persecution, and it may seem a story far from us. But Lord, we ask that you take our own places of lament, our own places of disappointment, of anger, of confusion. Father, would you help us to bring them to you, to bring them into the light, that you could carry them with us, that you could heal us, bring us hope where we've grown hopeless, Give us joy where we're on the verge of despair. We thank you, Father, that you love your children. That this morning you stand with open arms ready for anything that comes at you. Just ready to talk to us. Ready to trade our heavy yoke for your easy yoke. We thank you, Father, for your faithfulness to us. And that you take these prayers with joy. 
and you give us that grace. In Jesus' name.